Welcome back to the horse race. We're here for our first show of the year, and we've already had to take a day to process the horrifying events at the U.S. Capitol yesterday. This is, of course, where a pro-Trump mob stormed into the building while Congress was trying to certify President-elect Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. So the images that we saw, we're sure you all saw them. They were upsetting, as were the implications of what happened and how it started. So... To be clear, we're going to spend most of this episode talking about how our delegation here in Massachusetts has responded and also where we're kind of at today. But at the end of the episode, we're going to go back to an interview that we had yesterday with State House News reporter Katie Lannon talking about the end of the legislative session. So that's where we're at. Stephanie, Steve, uh, it was a pretty upsetting and crazy day yesterday, even though it ended as we sort of expected with Joe Biden being certified as the next president-elect. So how you doing? Yeah, it was extremely upsetting. The images that we saw were not something that I think I'd ever like to see in the United States again. Um, and as you alluded to at the beginning, how it happened, I think, is also something that we really need to reckon with. You know, the thing that I was sitting with a lot yesterday was... At the end of the day, government is about things that we do together and the things that we decide to do together. And we have decided in this country that there are ways that we replace that government and ways that we change who's in charge. And the that way is the vote. And that way is the Electoral College and, you know, all of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about on this podcast. And the thing that really struck me was that Donald Trump and a lot of his allies and enablers have spent a lot of time convincing people that you can't replace the government that way. And that's one of the way, one of the things that really led to yesterday was people who had been convinced that they could not trust the ballot, that they couldn't trust the election. So when we talk about faith in democracy and undermining faith in democracy, it's not just some nice thing. You know, it's not just like a nice feeling we have that we all appreciate. This is real. You know, this is the thing that makes the whole system work is the belief that we can replace our government in a peaceful manner. So that was the thing that I've really been been kind of carrying around. Stephanie, how about you? Um, you know, it's such a stunning end to the Trump presidency to finish, you know, in the final days with the Capitol being stormed by a mob of his supporters. But the resounding thing that I think people were just saying over and over yesterday was that this wasn't surprising if you logged on to any of kind of the online forums where this stuff was being organized. And if you just kind of look at all of the factors that I think we'll be talking about for years to come, uh, social media, partisan media, echo chambers, big tech, um, gerrymandering, partisan gridlock, and in the background of all of it, uh, an enormous global pandemic with uh, just an incredible amount of loss. Uh, this is really a historic time and a dark time in our country. And you spent a lot of time yesterday not getting a lot of sleep, talking to all of our elected officials who, of course, you know, were, were in the Capitol trying to cast their votes to certify this election and then spent a large and distressing part of their day either tucked away in safe, secure locations or basically cowering on the floor of the United States Senate while people stormed the building. So can you kind of talk us through, Stephanie, how people were reacting from the Massachusetts delegation and what they want to happen now? 
I have to say, you know, it was really jarring to see uh, members of Congress and my own colleagues from Politico posting pictures from inside the chamber, cowering behind chairs. Uh, There were no members of the Massachusetts delegation in the House chamber um, when the mob started to come in. They were all in their offices and were told to basically lock the door and shelter in place. Um, Rep. Seth Moulton and I think a couple of other reps were actually where their offices were. They were led to undisclosed locations. That's where I talked to Congressman Moulton on the phone. He had been waiting um, in this room and he couldn't say where it was for about six hours. And he was using words like domestic terrorism and coup, you know, these words that we we don't use lightly and we don't use often. Um, So he said to me that Trump should be removed from office, whether it's through the 25th Amendment or impeachment. And his colleagues all echoed that Uh, as we're recording this now. All of the members of the Massachusetts delegation say that Trump needs to be removed from office before January 20th. Yeah, we saw a lot of that kind of gathering steam on Twitter uh, almost immediately, actually, almost immediately after this started. But um, then particularly overnight, both in the Massachusetts delegation and now even reaching as high as soon-to-be Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has is starting to talk about the 25th Amendment just in the last few minutes. Um, just to give a sense of what some of the members of our delegation were saying, Seth Moulton tweeted, Trump is directly responsible for this insurrection and violence. He needs to be removed from office immediately. And he goes on from there. Um, Ayanna Presley tweeted, Donald J. Trump should immediately be impeached from the House of Rep- by the House of Representatives and removed from office by the Senate as soon as Congress reconvenes. Um, Elizabeth Warren said, I'll say it again, the cabinet should stop hiding behind anonymous leaks to reporters and do what the Constitution demands. And she goes on there, too. So a lot of very strongly worded statements that basically add up to, Stephanie, as you said, our entire delegation at this point is is basically backing shortening Trump's term by as much as we possibly can, you know, doing either the 25th, but either through the 25th Amendment route or through impeachment. Something that I found pretty striking was Congresswoman Lori Trahan. Her daughters had been with her at the Capitol the day before, and she actually took a photo of them. She told me on the steps where the next day it was, of course, overrun with people trying to break into the Capitol and succeeding. So just kind of like that split screen of like one day totally normal, and then the next uh, a moment that will be a photo that will be in every history book. And of course, this all happens with kind of the interesting backdrop of of the Mitt Romney of it all as well, which is that you do, in fact, have a sitting member of the U.S. Senate who was a losing Republican presidential candidate before. And so in his speech on the floor of the Senate, he was extremely forceful. There were even reports that um, as people were being vacated from the, the Capitol, he yelled, this is what you've gotten at Senator Ted Cruz, who was, of course, one of the group of senators that was trying to object to dofully submitted and processed Democratic votes in several states. But uh, Mitt Romney, in his speech on the House, basically, again, laid all of the blame for this or the majority of the incitement at the feet of President Trump and those who enabled him. And I think the thing that did sort of get me is he did talk a little bit personally about how terrible it is, in fact, to lose an election. But there's a reason that president after president has basically gotten over that and let the process continue as it went. So I did think that, A, not only is that a Massachusetts connection, former Governor Mitt Romney, but also he personally did not love losing to Barack Obama. Uh, So it was just uh, an interesting touch right there in the middle. 
And President Trump, for the first time um, at four o'clock in the morning on Thursday, said that he would agree to a transfer of power. Um, he put out a statement uh, through a spokesperson on Twitter because he is unable to tweet uh, that he would agree to, you know, an orderly transition. But I think at this point, it's hard to say that that can happen. Four people have already died uh, after what happened on Wednesday. Um, I wouldn't call that peaceful. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Stephanie. We're already past what would have been a peaceful transition of power. You can't overrun the Capitol and, you know, have four people die and then then agree to a peaceful transition of power. That's just not how it works. Um, so we're, we're already past that, I think. Um, but Jen, I also wanted to just read one other line that Mitt Romney said during his speech on the floor, which I thought really resonated. And it said, the best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. You know, and it seems like such a basic thing, but that's how we got here is if you don't tell people the truth, if you tell people something is being stolen from you, of course, they're going to be upset, you know. And this is what Trump has been doing year after year after year now is getting his supporters whipped up with complete falsehoods, complete lies, complete fiction. So I just wanted to call that one thing out that Mitt Romney said, because I really thought of, you know, there's a lot to take from the last day. There's a lot to take from the last week. But one of the things has to be we have to agree that the truth matters and we're going to tell it. Well, one uncomfortable sort of addendum to that point, Steve, is, you know, of course, this is an unusual horse race episode given everything, but it's still a horse race episode. So we're going to talk about public opinion polling. And one of the awkward things about not just the the continued protestations from the president that the election was stolen, but you did in fact see a significant number of House members still vote even later in the evening even after um, the Capitol was rushed by by this by this group of insurrectionists to try and overturn votes from these states. And one of the justifications that came up a lot in the Senate when they were debating last evening was that people believe this is an illegitimate election and that belief as a rationale for objecting to these votes. And so you do have that really uncomfortable relationship between telling people over and over and over again the election is stolen and then pointing at them listening to you and believing you as then further justification for your insistence that an election was stolen. So I wonder, Steve, if you might tell us a little bit about uh, what you thought of this YouGov poll uh, talking about the reaction to the Capitol instance. Yeah, absolutely. And Jen, I think it, this idea of using the belief in voter fraud as, as um, justification is something that goes back a ways. You know, you think all the way back to after the 2016 election and the voter fraud commission that, that they created, you know, confidence in the ballot was something that they were citing as far back as then, you know, as reasons why we needed to look at this. And, you know, at that time, it was just we need to clamp down on voting rights. It wasn't really we need to, you know, commit violent insurrection, you know, but that's kind of where it's gotten us is when you tell people the ballot is not secure, eventually they're going to believe you, you know, and that's that I think is is really at the heart of a lot of this. Um, but Jen, you also referred to the poll that came out yesterday, which was pretty interesting because th this is from the group YouGov. They do a lot of online polling. And one of the things that that means is that they can do polling very quickly. So they did a poll even kind of in the latter half of the day yesterday or the latter part of the day where the poll was of people who had heard about the event. So that was one thing. It's not all voters, you know, it's it's of a, of a selected group. Um, but then the questions that they asked them were, 
whether or not they saw the storming of the Capitol as a threat to democracy, which you would hope that there would be pretty widespread, if not universal, agreement on. Um, but unfortunately, we saw a majority of Republicans say no to that. Um, we They also asked the question about um, whether you support or oppose the actions. And um, Republicans, while we're about divided on that. We saw 43% say that they uh, strongly or somewhat opposed it. 45% said that they strongly or somewhat supported it. So even there, you don't really have kind of kind of universal condemnation. So it's not, you know, it's, it's just not, there's not a lot of, of good to take from that, I'm afraid. And happening at the same time as all of this is that the Senate is going to be in Democratic control. Uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock won their runoff races, uh, defeating two Republicans. And so the Senate's going to be 50-50 with Vice President Kamala Harris being able to break the tie. And this is, you know, a historic moment. Uh, Warnock is going to be the first black senator from Georgia. And it just ties into, you know, how much racism and white supremacy are just huge factors into what we saw um, at the Capitol on Wednesday with the Proud Boys and other groups uh, marching with Confederate flags being brought into the rotunda. Um, it's just kind of a, an incredible moment when these two things are converging. And the same way we talked about 2018 and those midterm elections being kind of a commentary on the Trump presidency um, in that there was, you know, a historic rebuke of of Trumpism in terms of the new new folks who were elected to Congress. This particular election counting the Georgia results is really interesting because it's the first time since 1932 that an incumbent president not only lost his re-election, but also lost both houses of Congress in the process. So, I mean, I think you you do have to contextualize sort of the the both the panic response, but then also the response from even um, elected officials who had initially been planning to object to the um, election results, basically swapping back over and saying, no, we need to kind of respect the process. Joe Biden is the president-elect. Mitch McConnell sounded pretty annoyed by the entire situation, pretty outraged. Um, and 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 the thing about it is, it does seem to indicate that even though this brand of of republicanism does have a really really substantial hold on the party, that a lot of the people that we look to when we talk about party leadership seem to be signaling very openly, including current Vice President Mike Pence, that they are not seeing a solid political future for themselves if they continue to hold on to these ideas. And you basically just have to look at the way they vote to see that calculation panning out. Yeah, there's sort of an interesting split right now in terms of, you know, the Republican Party has a lot of just outright political arsonists in it. You know, Josh Hawley, I think, certainly fits into that category, as does Ted Cruz. Um, you know, a fair number of members of the House uh, voted kind of to sustain the objection to counting the electoral votes. But then there's also some who have kind of stood by and let political arsonists, you know, kind of blast the Capitol with a flamethrower and the political system with a flamethrower and pour gasoline on it and didn't do anything about it. So, you know, I think what they choose to do at this point will be very 
uh, I think, determinative of where the Republican Party and really our whole political system goes. You know, of course, the Republican Party makes up such a such a significant portion of it that we can't just pretend that this that the way that it goes is kind of an aberration and we can ignore it. It's like half of the um, about half of the country, you know, and more than half when you get down to, to local levels. So the future of the Republican Party is up in the air and uh, where people like uh, Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney and and others who are, who have taken different approaches, but really not thrown the brakes on this direction, I think that that's something that we just really have to have to keep an eye on in the in the years to come. Well, Stephanie, I mean, as Steve alluded to, there is, of course, the question of of local chapters of the Republican Party as well. Uh, Massachusetts tends to have a complicated relationship with uh, the Republican Party as headed up by Trump. Can you talk at all about how uh, the Mass GOP and Governor Baker responded to this? Governor Baker responded to this event by saying that it was sad but predictable and uh, reaffirming that Joe Biden won the election. Uh, Don't forget that Baker uh, said he didn't vote uh, for Trump in 2020 or in 2016, instead opting to blank his ballot. Um, So that was, you know, the kind of response that you'd expect from Governor Baker, someone who's been at odds with President Trump. On the other hand, Mass GOP chair Jim Lyons, who has been, you know, best known during his tenure at the at the head of the party for embracing President Trump and calling the results of the election into doubt. Um, I spoke to him on the phone yesterday as the the insurrection was playing out, and he said that he unequivocally condemned everything that was happening. He said that Americans need to come together um, and protect the Constitution. And when I asked him um, if President Trump was doing a good enough job getting people to calm down and uh, disperse, uh, he said that he wasn't in D.C. and he could only give me his opinion. So not exactly um, uh, uh, condemning Trump's role in whipping up that crowd. Yeah, the Mass GOP issued a statement that basically expressed similar sentiments. You know, it comes out and says, I unequivocally condemn any attempt to disrupt our precious and irreplaceable constitutional order. Um, As Stephanie said, you know, they certainly have been involved in questioning the results that kind of led us to where we are today. But once, you know, the violence did break out, they, they were pretty forceful in their condemnation. So that's kind of a quick roundup of who's said what and where all the statements have been. Um, It's currently about one o'clock on Thursday, and this is a very rapidly evolving situation. But Stephanie, I know you're keeping minute by minute track of kind of what's going on, how it unfolds and what happens next. So what should we all be looking for in the hours and days to come? The big question is whether Congress is going to come back. After they certified the Electoral College results, uh, they went into a recess, and there's been some frustration um, among members that they should come back into session and impeach the president, especially if his cabinet doesn't invoke the 25th Amendment. Um, I'll, I'll point you to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Uh, her chief of staff said, you know, turning the page is not an option. This was on Twitter, and there's no reason not to come back to impeach and remove Trump. Uh, and Ayanna Presley retweeted it and said, I see nothing but facts in her tweet. So there is a push to come back. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it happens. The members of the delegation have told me that the longer that this drags on, uh, the worse precedent it sets for future presidents. There's no real easy way to pivot out of this conversation, but there are some things happening in Massachusetts that we need to address. Um, Breaking on 
Thursday, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has been tapped by President-elect Joe Biden to serve as Labor Secretary. Of course, this is going to have an enormous um, domino effect in what happens in the mayoral race that's happening later this year in Boston. And uh, City Council President Kim Janey is on track to become the first black woman mayor of Boston when Walsh leaves. Uh, she'll be serving as acting mayor. Uh, so that is something that's going on that we're going to be talking about, I'm sure, next week. And also, uh, the legislature just finished its two-year session in a mad dash at uh, around four o'clock in the morning, uh, t- passing some major bills. So we are going to play an interview with State House News reporter Katie Lannon, which we recorded earlier this week to get the download on everything that happened on Beacon Hill on Tuesday night. State legislators toiled the night away last night, extending the legislative session even further than it had already been, and passing bills until the wee hours of this morning. Ah, and who was tired, there, watching it all unfold, but our one and only BFF of the pod, State House News Service reporter, president of the Massachusetts State House Press Association, and lieutenant of late night legislation, Katie Lannon. Hey, Katie, how you feeling? Um, grateful that you scheduled this for the afternoon um, is how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> we hope you've had a chance to, to get some sleep because it does sound like it was a very late night. And I understand they even somehow voted to change the date or something like that or, or change time somehow so that they could keep going. Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of rules on Beacon Hill is that they're made to be suspended. So the Senate was um, optimistically at one point not going to meet past 1 a.m. Um, and then kept going in half hour increments till uh, I believe 4.41 a.m. was the, the final time. And I believe in the, the house, they just chose to ignore that it was past midnight and just keep going. So we need the vibe check. What was it like doing this until 4.41 in the morning when half the legislature, more than half, was at home. Like, did it, how did it feel compared to the end of previous sessions? So bunch of things were different, including the fact that I too was at home. I was able to do this from my couch in sweatpants, which makes it a little, a <laughs> little more bearable, but it's, it's definitely harder to tell what's going on when you're not in a position to necessarily see people running down the hallway all of a sudden or say, you know, oh, the conferees on the economic development bill are huddling. Um, a couple of my colleagues, Sam Doran and Chris Van Buskirk, were our, our eyes in the building and did see those things happen. But um, we still haven't figured out a way to be in 10 or so places at once, which always makes end of session a little difficult. Um, it's also weird that we're doing this in January. This is usually a, a July rush, um, as you know we've all talked about before. So that plus the remote voting, which is just slower by nature, um, tough to. I don't, I don't know. I don't envy the uh, the monitors in the legislature who had to keep their colleagues on the phone line, you know, two, three, four in the morning. I mean, well, let's let's if we can then talk about uh, what we were able to observe happening. There were some actual headlines, some actual bills that made it all the way through. So why don't you walk us through some of the big ones? Yeah, I mean, the the big ones that kind of everyone was waiting for 
for the the major economic development bill, the the jobs bill that kind of functions as a as a state level stimulus, but includes all sorts of other um, measures, including the the zoning reforms the governor has been pushing for. Um, there's some language on, you know, restaurant and third-party delivery fees. There was not sports betting. That was um, one of the things that really came down to the wire to see if that would be in their sports betting legalization. Uh, so looking at some of the details in there, some of those things sound like they'd be the sort of thing that would affect people on a day-to-day -day basis, not just like future economic, you know, uh, kinds of measures to, to, to get the economy going. Talk, if you would, a little bit about some of the things like the, you know, the delivery fees and the things we've kind of heard about during the pandemic. What are some things that'll change for life on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, these major economic development bills go through every session and sort of become this catch-all at the end for, for other policies that emerge during the debate. The, the restaurant piece, it caps third-party delivery service fees. So if you place an order on Grubhub or DoorDash or something like that, um, during this state of emergency, those services won't be able to charge restaurants more than 15% the order price um, you know, we've all heard, I think, how much restaurants in particular are struggling under the, the COVID restrictions. And I think a lot of people are newly becoming aware of just how, how much it costs them to use the services that help keep their business running. There's that is a major piece. There's student loan uh, borrower protections. Yeah, I was actually gonna. I was gonna ask about that. That's a particularly topical question right now in 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 light of the national conversation around student loans, uh, the kind of existing turmoil that longtime student debt causes uh, for for not just the students themselves but also their families. Um, the impact there. So it's the student loan borrower bill of rights was what was kind of tucked into this economic development bill on the larger front. Can you talk a little bit about what the actual protections are in here? Sure. The The big thing in there is kind of accountability for, for uh, lenders. Um, there'll be the division of banks will have to license student loan servicers. There'll be an ombudsman office to help field complaints. Um, and I personally, for me, this was one of the things that kind of surprised me that made its way in there. It hadn't been on my radar given all the the major issues, but it's something that I think has come up. Um, you know, certainly this bill has been around for, for a number of years, and I think we're seeing the, the pandemic and the economic crisis really um, fostering a new awareness of really all sorts of financial burdens that people place. Let's move on to the transportation bond bill, which was another very anticipated piece of legislation that came out late at night. What is in there? Um, a lot is in there. It's about $16.5 billion in um, transportation borrowing in bonds. And it, it's not to be confused with the tax and fee package that the House um, passed kind of before COVID really hit us here. And then the Senate never really had an interest in taking up once that happened. So this is bonding for highway and bridge maintenance, uh, train modernization, and then it has a few other measures in there beyond that. It, you know, decriminalizes fare evasion on the T. It increased Uber and Lyft fees, which um, was a proposal that was has been kicking around um, 
the branches and the governor has proposed it, but it wasn't actually in either of these um, original House or Senate bond bills. So that was another late night surprise. And it, it's really looking at, you know, they're in kind of a, an awkward spot where we have, you know, a transportation system in need of investment, but the way people use transportation has tra changed so dramatically over the past year. Um, and even further, I'd say that we don't really know, we don't really know what's going to go back when all this is over. We don't know if people are going to get back on the T or, um, you know, even how often they're going to be going into work, for instance. So it's not even just which modes they use, it's, it's how often they use them. Um, but between the um, Uber and Lyft fee increase and some of that will be going to the T and, and the, the TCI uh, policy. It seems like there's a lot of new money coming into the transportation system. So any sense from this legislation or from other things coming up, uh, what some of the changes to the system might look like? Or is that something we still don't really know a lot about? I don't think we know yet what kind of long-term changes this might yield there's still the you know the service cuts at the t are still on the table and in terms of new investments i don't think there's a lot of certainty yet about what what shape those might take so katie what happens next these bills aren't the law yet and the 191st general court no longer exists so governor baker really has all the power here right now that the bills are on his desk yeah, Stephanie, and I'm really glad you bring that up because it's kind of an we're in an interesting moment right now where, you know, the legislature is kind of taking a, a victory lap. They've gotten their work done. They've finished. They, they made it through the long, long, long night. Um, but that doesn't mean things are done. The governor still has 10 days to, to review them. Um, he can sign them. He has the option now because the the legislature that wrote the bills technically doesn't exist anymore. Um, if the governor doesn't sign them, that's considered a pocket veto. It's dead. Um, they'd need to start from scratch. There's no ability for the governor to veto a bill and have the legislature override it or for him to send things back with an amendment and the legislature respond to it. It's a, it's a straight yes or no, up or down. Um, all the the power is in the governor's hands at this point, and we don't really know he's got a, a full plate, and we're not really sure yet what he's going to choose to do with it. That's really interesting. So it's because it came down to basically when the new legislature is being sworn in, which was today, and uh, the bills were all passed last night, that it, but now Baker... Uh, can basically do whatever he wants because, as you put it, the legislature that passed these bills doesn't exist. So a very interesting kind of uh, impact of of how long this legislative term was extended for. Yeah, definitely. We have, you know, we've seen when they adjourn in July, um, sometimes or not adjourn in July, but to break for a recess without adjourning. Um, you sometimes see the governor send back amendments that happened with the civics education law last session, and they managed to, over time, gradually work through the issues. But that's that's not an option here. Do you know if lawmakers went to bed after 4.45 in the morning before they were sworn in later? Uh, I would imagine it runs the gamut. I, I think um, you, you might have had some all-nighters. It like if you're if you're on the call from your couch right like nothing's to stop you from really nap napping I guess it's not really going to sleep right it's a nap at that point but um I know I was just before um coming over here to talk to you all I was 
watching the Senate's uh, first session of the year, and I believe one of the, the senators who nominated a minority leader, Bruce Tarr, for his post uh, mentioned that he might not have left the building last night, so... Pulling some bunks out from underneath desks. So, I mean, the the other important question, of course, is this went into the wee hours of the morning. Um, did anything not get done that was particularly significant? Yeah, I think we're going to still be unpacking that for a while. <laughs> what didn't get done? Um, one of the things we didn't see get resolved was the the governor's um, uninsurance rate relief to stop that from being such an increase um, as inspect as expected. But there's still a, a couple months that they could act on that before it really becomes an issue. Um, it's just, it, you know, the bill needs to be refiled and they have to start over. Our best friend of the pod here, Katie Landon, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll have you on again soon. Yes, hopefully when I'm uh, more caffeinated. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, on that note, then I think we have to leave you all for this week. Not sure what next week is going to look like, but we will see you all then.